Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. You're listening to episode 64 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. In 1917, the Virgin Mary appeared to three small children. She revealed to them a three-part secret. The third part remained secret. It seemed like the secret might never be released. In the year 2000, John Paul II decided that the time had come to release the third part of the secret. So how did people react to this revelation of the third secret? Many who had been demanding the release of the secret were aghast. It caused huge cognitive dissonance. So where do we go from here? Next episode, we'll talk about the interpretation of the third secret and the different theories about it. You're listening to episode 65 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the theories about the third secret of Fatima. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So in 1917, the Virgin Mary appeared to three small children from Fatima, Portugal. She revealed to them a three-part secret. The first two parts were soon revealed, but the third part remained secret until the year 2000 when Pope John Paul II revealed it to the world. Many were shocked as the secret was not what they were expecting. Some even argued that the Vatican had not revealed the secret or the whole secret. Others challenged the Vatican's interpretation of the secret. And these theories are what we'll be talking about today on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So Jimmy, how do we want to begin the episode today? Well, if you haven't already heard it, go back and listen to Friday's episode 64 for more background on The Third Secret. And if you want background on the Fatima apparitions as a whole, go back and listen to episode 40. But let's start today's episode by reading The Third Secret once more. It said, After the two parts, which I have already explained, at the left of Our Lady and a little above, we saw an angel with a flaming sword in his left hand. Flashing, it gave out flames that looked as though they would set the world on fire, but they died out in contact with the splendor that Our Lady radiated towards him from her right hand. Pointing to the earth with his right hand, the angel cried out in a loud voice, Penance, penance, penance. And we saw in an immense light that is God, something similar to how people appear in a mirror when they pass in front of it. A bishop dressed in white, we had the impression that it was the Holy Father. Other bishops, priests, men and women religious going up a steep mountain, at the top of which there was a big cross of rough-hewn trunks as of a cork tree with the bark. Before reaching there, the Holy Father passed through a big city half in ruins, and half trembling with halting step, afflicted with pain and sorrow, he prayed for the souls of the corpses he met on his way. Having reached the top of the mountain, on his knees at the foot of the big cross, he was killed by a group of soldiers who fired bullets and arrows at him, and in the same way there died one after another the other bishops, priests, men and women religious, and various laypeople of different ranks and positions. Beneath the two arms of the cross there were two angels, each with a crystal aspersorium in his hand, in which they gathered up the blood of the martyrs, and with it sprinkled the souls that were making their way to God. So that's the text of the third secret that St. John Paul II released. Uh, okay, Jimmy, so what are the theories about the third secret of Fatima? There, We can kind of break them into two groups. For the first are theories about the text of the third secret, and then there are theories about the interpretation of the third secret. Under theories about the text, there are basically three. Uh, the first one is the Vatican's position, which the text of the third secret has been fully released. There's, they're not holding anything back. The second one is that the third secret has only been partially revealed, that they did keep something back. And the third theory is that they haven't released the third secret at all, that what they released is something else, but it's not the third secret. Then, under interpretations of the text they did release, one theory, and this is the Vatican's, is that the third secret refers to basically to the Cold War, I mean, a little more than that, but basically the Cold War and the assassination 
attempt on John Paul II and that the third secret has thus been fulfilled. Another interpretation is that the third secret has not yet been fulfilled. And a related theory is that the consecration of Russia that Our Lady of Fatima asked for has not been done and still needs to be done. So what can we say about these theories from the reason perspective? The question of whether the third secret has been revealed falls under the heading of reason. It's not a theological question. Has has this been revealed? So that's a factual question of a different order that you don't need to appeal to the Bible, you know, really, or or theology to figure out. Right. So we're going to we're going to deal with the theories about the text under the heading of reason. And then since the interpretation of the text gets us into some more theological areas, we'll deal with that under the heading of faith. What arguments do people use to argue that the third secret has not been revealed or that has only been partially revealed? There are claims that the third secret was written on a single sheet of paper, but the photostats published by the Vatican indicate the third secret was written on four sheets of paper. So if that's true, it would suggest either that the third secret hasn't been revealed at all or that if it was released, it was supplemented by additional material because you got those extra three pages. I'm unaware of anybody who says it was revealed and supplemented, though. I, that's just a hypothetical possibility. Nobody that I know argues that. It's claimed that Sister, it's also claimed that Sister Lucia stated that the third secret was written in the form of a letter, but the text issued by the Vatican is not in the form of a letter. There's no dear Bishop so-and-so at the top of it. The addition that Sister Lucia made to the second secret in her fourth memoir, the bit about in Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved, that doesn't match up to the beginning of the text that the Vatican published, and the text that the Vatican published does not contain what it was expected to by some people. It doesn't deal with end-time prophecy or an apostasy from the church. Let's look at these arguments. What are we to make of the single sheet of paper argument? This argument would not help those who want to say that the third secret has only been partially revealed. If anything, it would mean it hasn't been revealed at all. Because if what was released is four times longer than the original, it, it you can't say it, it's really hard to see how you can say it's been partially revealed. But here's the thing. It's hard to find a good source for the single sheet claim. I haven't been able to find any primary source who actually saw the secret say this. The I have found a secondary source that attributes the statement to Sister Lucia saying she wrote it on a sheet of paper but I haven't found the source of that quotation in her own words. It's just a secondary source, and we have other sources, like there's one from a priest who said he was outside the room where the secret was being read, and it was on a single sheet of paper, but he didn't see it. He's outside the room. So how do you know? However, even if Sister Lucia did, even if there is an original source where Sister Lucia said she wrote it on a single sheet of paper, That could be unreliable for a variety of reasons, including it could be based on a translation error. She may have said she wrote it on paper or on some paper rather than a single sheet of paper. That's much more specific. It's easy to see how a translator could accidentally gloss something like I wrote it on some paper to I wrote it on a sheet of paper. Or it could be a singular plural mistake. She could have said, I wrote it on sheets of paper and it got a sheet of, it became a sheet of paper. In any event, the discrepancy is not major. The Vatican photostats may look like they indicate four sheets, but it could just be the front and the back of two sheets. And the distinction between one and two sheets is not major. And in the absence of a solid source indicating that for reals, it was only one sheet. I don't think this is a strong argument. This is a case, I think, of, or could be a case of where people take statements that that someone makes that they're not intending to be absolutely legally precise with. Right. And trying to parse it in this very legally precise manner or scientifically precise manner. Exactly. It's it's failing to deal with the level of approximation that occurs in human speech. Right. Okay. So what about the claim that Sister Lucia stated the third secret was written in the form of a letter? but the text issued by the Vatican was not in the form of a letter. 
here we have a better primary source. The message of Fatima, that's the 2000 document the Holy See came out with. It refers to Sister Lucia being handed the envelope containing the third part of the secret in the year 2000. And upon receiving it, she said, this is my letter and this is my writing. So she did refer to it as a letter. However, in context, she's identifying the text published by the Vatican as her letter. And the likely reason she called it a letter is that it was a message in an envelope. For this argument to have weight, that it, it couldn't be the letter, it couldn't be the third secret because it's not in the form of a letter, you'd have to argue that for something to count as a letter, it not only has to be a message sent in an envelope, but also have to have a formal greeting at the top, like Dear Bishop So-and-So. But if a normal person sends a handwritten message on a few sheets of paper in an envelope, you can call it a letter. In fact, the message of Fatima and the documents it quotes regularly refer to the text published by the Vatican as a letter, presumably for precisely this reason. It was a message sent in an envelope. So this argument is not a strong one. Again, it depends on very finely parsing terms and assuming they have to have one meaning, like it has to have the formal characteristics of a letter, like a greeting at the top. And that, again, just doesn't deal with the level of approximation in human speech. You write something on a couple pieces of paper, you put it in an envelope, you send it to someone, you can call it a letter, whether it says dear so-and-so at the top or not. All right. What about the claim that the addition that Sister Lucia made to the second secret in her fourth memoir doesn't match the beginning of the text the Vatican published? It's true that in the fourth memoir, Sister Lucia added the line, in Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved, etc. In context, this is a statement being made by Mary, and it doesn't match the opening line of the text published by the Vatican, which is in Lucia's words, not Mary's, and says, after the two parts which I have already explained, that's Lucia talking for herself, at the left of Our Lady and a little above, we saw an angel with a flaming sword in his left hand. So at the end of the second secret, in a second part of the secret, with the little addition, Mary is talking. But then in the third secret, Lucia is talking. But for this argument to work, you have to assume that the 1941 addition to the secret was meant to be part of the third secret. This is a guess that some people made. Remember that's that Sister Lucia gave us in that little 1941 edition. She gave us the first line of the third part of the secret. That was a guess that some people made, but it's not required by the text. And so it doesn't matter if the third secret doesn't flow, doesn't contain that line and then continue to flow on from there. One can also understand the line about the dogma of the faith being preserved in Portugal as something Mary said, simply as an element of the second part of the secret, which is how Lucia presented it as part of the second part of the secret. And the etc. is then where the third part of the secret goes. She had not, you'll notice, included the line about Portugal in her third memoir, perhaps simply because she wasn't thinking about it when she wrote her third memoir. You don't have to attribute any special significance to it appearing in the fourth one, but not in the third. Given her extreme reluctance to put the third part of the secret in writing, remember, she didn't do it until she was maybe dying, they thought, and her bishop even then had to order her to put the third secret in writing. So she's very reluctant to do that. And it's it's very unlikely that she would flash us the first line of the third part of the secret just as a wink to the public, you know, right. at the end of the second part of the secret. It is far more likely that that addition is meant to be part of the second part of the secret. And she just wasn't thinking about that element when she wrote the third memoir. Flexibility in relating the secret is to be expected since these are human documents that depend on Sister Lucia's memory and choice of phrasing. The documents in which she wrote the different parts of the secret aren't perfect, divinely inspired mechanical dictations whose words can be rigorously pressed. As the 1978 document from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith on Discerning Apparitions indicates, small elements can be added 
by the consciousness of the seer. We'll have a link to this document, by the way, in the show notes. But small elements can be added to a, a report of an apparition by the consciousness of the, by the consciousness of the seer. And if elements can even be added, the, then the exact phrasing and arrangement of the elements is not guaranteed. It's it, this is part of a human process. There's flexibility here. Is this any way related to how scripture is transmitted that we sometimes have to take into account the differences in way that it's been copied? Is that or is that something different? That's something different. But we do see a similar process happening in scripture where you have flexibility on the part of the sacred authors and how they recount things on different occasions. So like you'll see in the synoptic gospels, you'll have up, up to three accounts of mm -hmm. something that happened with Jesus and they come out slightly differently because they're even even in divinely inspired documents. There's this human element operating where God uses the human author and the human author's background. And so these things get phrased in a human way. And that means some variation in detail, even though the gist, the thrust is the same. Right. And if that's true, even of divinely inspired documents, it's even more true of documents like this that are not divinely inspired. So did then Sister Lucia always write the text of the secrets in the same way? No, she clearly paraphrases and varies the elements she includes in different accounts. So what's an example of something that varied throughout Sister Lucia's accounts? In 1922, she wrote a document called The Events of 1917. It's not one of the four later memoirs, but in it, she says the following about the July apparition. The lady said, do you want to learn a prayer? We said, yes, we do. The lady said, it is the following. Oh, my Jesus, forgive us, free us from the fires of hell and take all poor souls to heaven, especially those who are in most need of it. Then she confided some few words to us saying, tell this to no one. You may only tell it to Francisco. Yeah, I love that. Then she confided a few words, some few words to us. That's all three parts of the secret right there. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll notice what she does say here. When Lucia says, then she confided a few words to us. So that's the that's the third secret or the three, all three parts. But notice the words that Lucia attributes to Mary. Tell this to no one. You may only tell it to Francisco. So when did she recount this differently? In the third memoir, when she revealed the first two parts of the secret, she doesn't repeat, tell this to no one, you may only tell it to Francisco. She omits that. That element is not there. Then, in the fourth memoir, she has a passage at the end of the second part of the secret that wasn't there at all in the third part, in the third memoir, and the mention of Francisco is back. This time, the added passage reads, In Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved, etc. Ellipsis. Do not tell this to anybody. Francisco, yes, you may tell him. When you pray the rosary, say after each mystery, O oh my Jesus, forgive us, save us from the fires of hell, lead all souls to heaven, especially those who are in most need of thy mercy. Yeah, so notice the differences in this passage. Instead of tell no one, you may only tell it to Francisco, we have do not tell this to anybody, Francisco, yes, you may tell him, suggesting that Lucia had asked a question that prompted this response. Also note the the prayer for the poor souls, which here are just are referred to as all souls instead of take all poor souls to heaven. Here it's just lead all souls to heaven. That prayer is given after the second part of the secret instead of before the second part of the secret began. So she's relocated that in the sequence of events. We also have the added instruction to pray that prayer after each decade of the rosary, which was not there in the earlier document. And we have the added promise saying in Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved with an ellipsis indicating where the third part of the secret began. So and there are other differences, too, in the phrasing. Take a look at the outline if you're one of our patrons and you can read them word for word and see how they're changing. So Sister Lucia, as this illustrates, regularly recounts the same substance of what happened but including different details, sometimes in a different order and using different words. Therefore, we can't press the details of one account to falsify another account. 
Neither can we simply assume that Sister Lucia, despite her extreme hesitation regarding the third secret, was covertly telling it to the public its essential contents in the fourth memoir by that edition. The alternative explanation that this is just a variation, the added line about Portugal is just a variation that she remembered at the time she was writing the fourth memoir, but not at the time she was writing the third memoir is much more likely. If the reference to Portugal is an element of the second part of the secret, the second secret rather than the third, does that mean it predicts a mass apostasy? Not necessarily. Apostasies come in different degrees, and there was a weakening of the faith in Europe in the 20th century. The reference thus could be to this weakening of faith in Europe without it implying anything like a near complete worldwide apostasy. So it doesn't mean it's still future or is going to get worse. We may have already, it may or may not, but that's not uh, what's required by the text here. Also, it's been reported that Sister Lucia interpreted the dogma of the faith to refer to something very specific, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Note that she speaks of the dogma, singular, not the dogmas of the faith. And the dogma of the Immaculate Conception was the most recent dogma a pope had proclaimed. Uh, Pius IX had done it just 63 years earlier. So Mary could have just given her, I mean, the reason for that line may just be Mary was giving her an assurance that people in Portugal would continue to believe in the Immaculate Conception, in which case there might not be any indication of an apostasy, just that the Portuguese people would continue to have faith in this Marian dogma. What about the claim that the text that the Vatican published does not contain what it was expected to? For example, the third part doesn't deal with an end time prophecy or an apostasy in the church. Well, for this argument to work, you need to already know what the content of the third secret is. And otherwise, you can't say, well, it it can't be the third secret because it doesn't say the right stuff. That presupposes you already know what the third secret is. And we've seen the problem with assuming that the third secret involves a mass apostasy based on the 1941 edition. That was an element of the second part. It just wasn't in the third part. But you could then say, well, what about other bases? for this claim or that it involves biblical prophecy. Those who argue for this position sometimes cite statements reported in the press by John Paul II or Joseph Ratzinger or even Sister Lucia, because over the course of time, they were asked about the third secret a lot before it was announced, and they would need to say something. And so typically, they uh, would reply in a kind of elliptical, cryptic way that because they were trying not to give it away because the Pope had not decided to reveal it. So they're trying to say something, but not not reveal actually what it said. Unfortunately, a lot of the accounts that you find of things they said are not reliable. Because of the sensationalism associated with this subject, some of the quotations are inaccurate or even flatly made up. Mm. And those that are accurate, like I said, they're elliptical. The speakers are trying to avoid revealing the secret. And so that means you can't take early, deliberately vague statements and use them to invalidate later clear statements made by the same people after the secrets revelation saying this is what it was. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah. So in uh, in 1998, there was an interview published by with a man named Howard D, who was the Philippine ambassador to the Holy See. He said that the, Cardinal Ratz. I'm sorry. Yes. He was an mm-hmm. interview of who with Cardinal Ratzinger? Well, no, it was an interview with a guy named Howard D. OK, who was the Philippine ambassador to the Holy See. OK. And he said, so this is a secondary source. Yep. He said Cardinal Ratzinger told him that the message of Fatima and the message of an apparition in Akita, Japan, were, quote, essentially the same, end quote. So notice we got a secondary source here. We don't have Cardinal Ratzinger saying this himself in something he published. We're depending, therefore, on the ambassador's honesty and memory. He may well be paraphrasing. You know, Cardinal Ratzinger may have just indicated that the two messages were similar, but for the sake of argument, Let's assume that the quotation D attributed to Ratzinger is an accurate direct quotation, that Ratzinger really said the message of Fatima and the message of Akita are, quote, essentially the same, close quote. Well, 
What does it mean for two messages to be essentially the same? Notice that D indicated Ratzinger was speaking of the message of Fatima, not the third secret of Fatima. In other words, the overall message of Fatima, not just the third part of the secret or even the secret itself, but the whole message, as it was publicly known from 1917 onward, was basically the same message, basically the same as the message of Akita. And that's what you would expect Ratzinger to be saying. It's highly unlikely that someone of Ratzinger's discretion would comment to a Philippine ambassador on the third part of the secret specifically. Right. When when the Pope has not authorized him to do that. Also, notice that D indicated that Ratzinger said they were essentially the same. That is, they contained the same basic message, but they could have differences in particular elements. In fact, saying that they were essentially the same would imply they did have differences in particular elements. Otherwise, he wouldn't have to add essentially. He would just say, oh, they were the same. This means that what you need to do is look at the whole message of Fatima, not just the three-part secret, and compare it to the whole message of Akita and see if they have the same basic thrust, even if they differ in particulars. Well, at a basic level, Fatima involves a call to repentance with warnings of judgments, including wars, if repentance doesn't occur, and Fatima also stresses praying the rosary. So what does Akita do? Well, Akita involves a call to repentance with warnings of judgments, including wars, if repentance doesn't occur. And Akita also stresses praying the rosary. So, yeah, both apparitions have messages that are essentially the same. What you can't do is take a single element found in Akita and then insist that it must be an element in the third part of the Secret of Fatima. That goes way beyond what Ratzinger's words to D, assuming they were accurate, would let you infer. You especially can't infer that when, in 2000, Joseph Ratzinger himself said that the Vatican published the text of the third part of the secret, and it's the whole secret. You can't pit inferences based on reported earlier vague statements against verified later clear and explicit statements made by the same person. And by the way, for folks who may wonder, yes, in the future, we may do an episode on Akita. <laughs> one, of, one of our most common statements. Uh, if the arguments that the third secret has not been fully revealed or revealed at all are weak, what is the case that it has been fully revealed? It ultimately comes down to an issue of trust. At its publication in the year 2000 and in the years since, the people we know read the secret, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, Cardinal Tarsicio Bertone, and Sister Lucia herself, all said that the secret has been published in full. In fact, in his theological commentary in the Message of Fatima document, Cardinal Ratzinger says that the third part of the secret is, quote, published here in its entirety, close quote. And he goes on to speak of, quote, the third part of the secret of Fatima, which is for the first time, which for the first time is being published here in its entirety, close quote. So this is the man who, as the head of the CDF, was the guardian of the secret, and he twice says it's being published in its entirety. The only way to avoid the conclusion that the third secret has been published in its entirety, is to say that St. John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, and the others involved in its publication, including Sister Lucia, were flat-out lying to the world. Uh, that is a bridge way too far. It simply is not credible that all these people were lying, and I therefore regard it as certain that the text published by the Vatican is the third secret in its entirety. So... From the faith perspective now, what are we to make of the interpretation of the third secret? Let's start with the interpretation that was offered in the Message of Fatima document. It said, The vision of Fatima concerns, above all, the war waged by atheistic systems against the Church and Christians. And it describes the immense suffering endured by the witnesses of the faith in the last century of the second millennium, 
It is an interminable way of the cross led by the popes of the 20th century. According to the interpretation of the Little Shepherds, which was also confirmed recently by Sister Lucia, the bishop clothed in white, who prays for all the faithful, is the pope. As he makes his way with great difficulty towards the cross, amid the corpses of those who were martyred, bishops, priests, men and women religious, and many laypeople, he too falls to the ground, apparently dead, under a hail of gunfire. After the assassination attempt of 13 May 1981, it appeared evident that it was a mother's hand that guided the bullet's path, enabling the Pope in his throes to halt at the threshold of death. These are quotations from Pope John Paul II. The successive events of 1989 led, both in the Soviet Union and in a number of countries of Eastern Europe, to the fall of the communist regimes which promoted atheism. For this, too, His Holiness offers heartfelt thanks to the Most Holy Virgin. In other parts of the world, however, attacks against the Church and against Christians, with the burden of suffering they bring, tragically continue. Even if the events to which the third part of the Secret of Fatima refers now seem part of the past, Our Lady's call to conversion and penance, issued at the start of the 20th century, remains timely and urgent today. So, in brief, this interpretation holds that the third secret refers to the struggle between atheistic communism and the church over the course of the 20th century. It deals with the struggle of 20th century popes and others in the church with this system and the persecutions that they experienced. And in particular, it was fulfilled in a special way with the assassination attempt made on John Paul II on May 13th, 1981, the 64th anniversary of Our Lady of Fatima's first appearance. Then following the 1984 consecration, the Soviet system fell apart and Russia was converted from its destructive course of action. And by the way, this was one. This was the thing that really struck me when the third secret was announced. It's like, wow, that assassination occurred on the anniversary. Mm-hmm. I mean, the odds of that are low. Right. <laughs> I mean, the odds of anything happening on an anniversary are one in three hundred and sixty-five. <laughs> and when you then add, it's the assassination of a pope. Right. I mean, it's like, whoa, that, okay, that's supernatural revelation. Yes. I remember feeling that way when this was revealed that, that, wow, this is, that that event is what is being predicted here. So what did Sister Lucia think of this interpretation? In the, in his theological commentary in the message of Fatima, Cardinal Ratzinger noted, as is clear from the documentation presented here, The interpretation offered by Cardinal Sodano in his statement of 13 May was first put personally to Sister Lucia. Sister Lucia responded by pointing out that she had received the vision, but not its interpretation. The interpretation, she said, belonged not to the visionary, but to the church. After reading the text, however, she said that this interpretation corresponded to what she had experienced and that on her part, she thought the interpretation correct. So when they were getting ready to release the third secret, they had their the Vatican interpretation. They ran it past Sister Lucia, and she said, I think that's right. In a conversation with Archbishop, then Archbishop Bertone and the Bishop of Laeria Fatima, she was even more specific. The message of Fatima notes, Sister Lucia agreed with the interpretation that the third part of the secret was a prophetic vision, similar to those in sacred history. She repeated her conviction that the vision of Fatima concerns, above all, the struggle of atheistic communism against the church and against Christians, and describes the terrible sufferings of the victims of the faith in the 20th century. And this is nothing new for her. The message of Fatima contains the text of a letter she wrote to John Paul II on May 12, 1982. So this is the day before he came to pray at Fatima on the one-year anniversary of the assassination attempt. And it's also the day that that former priest stabbed him. So this is the stabbing day. And she wrote a letter to him on that day in which she said, The third part of the secret refers to Our Lady's words, quote, If not, Russia will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be martyred. The Holy Father will have much to suffer. Various nations will be annihilated. The third part of the secret, end quote. The third part of the secret is a symbolic revelation referring to this part of the message, conditioned by whether we accept 
or not what the message itself asks of us. Quote, if my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted, and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, etc. End quote. So it turns out, according to Sister Lucia, the third part of the secret does elaborate on something in the second part, but it's not the in Portugal, the faithful dogmas, the dogma of the faith will be preserved part. It's the Russia will spread her errors part and cause wars and so forth. So Sister Lucia herself interpreted the secret as referring to the struggle between Russia and the church with the promise that if her request of a consecration was heeded, Russia would be converted from spreading war and there would be a time of peace. Let's go through some objections people might make to this interpretation. What about the fact that the vision shows a group of soldiers using guns and arrows, but it was a lone gunman who wasn't a soldier that shot John Paul II? Remember that the vision isn't trying to depict a single incident. It's compressing the events of an entire century of struggle down to one image. Therefore, we shouldn't imagine the vision as requiring a single incident in which a group of soldiers kills a bunch of people that happens to include the Pope. It's a symbol of all of the communist martyrdoms of Christians in the 20th century, including the attempted assassination of John Paul II. Well, what about the fact that the soldiers in the vision would presumably be from Russia or other communist countries, but the would-be papal assassin, Mehmet Ali Acha, was a Turkish man? Aja was an assassin for hire. The question is who was paying him at the moment. Uh, it is widely believed, including at the Vatican, that he was in the pay of communist authorities who wanted the Pope shot because of his support of the Polish Solidarity Movement, which was destabilizing the communist hold in, on Eastern Europe and that later played a role in the fall of the Soviet system. Aja has at various times admitted to being in the pay of communists, although he has also repeatedly changed his story, making him unreliable. And in the future, we will likely do an episode on Aja and the assassination attempt. However, in view of the fact that the assassination attempt occurred on the anniversary of Our Lady's first appearance, I consider it highly probable that Aja was a communist agent. What about the fact that the bishop in the vision is killed, but John Paul II didn't die? Well, first, remember that this document isn't a divinely inspired scripture telling us that the bishop in the vision had to die. It's a document describing what the children saw in a vision. They saw the pope shot and fall over, and they inferred that he was killed by this. But that interpretation could easily be one of the small elements added by the consciousness of the seer. What you know, Mary showed them, here's the pope being shot and falling over, and they assumed he died. Right. Um, second, remember that the major purpose of the Fatima apparition is to encourage repentance. Sister Lucia repeatedly indicated that events could be changed and would go different ways depending on how people responded. In 1917, she said if people repented after World War I, World War II could have been avoided. In 1943, she said that because of the consecration Pius XII had attempted the year before, World War II would end sooner than it, than it otherwise would have. And also, because that consecration in 1942 was incomplete, she said the conversion of Russia was going to be put off until later, meaning if a complete consecration had been done in 1942, Russia would have been converted back then in the 1940s. So she's indicated the always in motion the future is. <laughs> and and so consequently, uh, things can go different ways. As a result, in his theological commentary, Cardinal Ratzinger wrote, The vision then shows the power which stands opposed to the force of destruction, the splendor of the mother of God, and stemming from this in a certain way, the summons to penance. In this way, the importance of human freedom is underlined. The future is not, in fact, unchangeably set, and the image which the children saw is in no way a film preview of a future in which nothing can be changed. Indeed, the whole point of the vision is to bring freedom onto the scene and to steer freedom in a positive direction. The purpose of the vision is not to show a film of an irrevocably fixed future. Its meaning is exactly the opposite. It is meant to mobilize the forces of change in the right direction. 
Therefore, we must totally discount fatalistic explanations of the secret, such as, for example, the claim that this would be the the would be assassination of 13 May 1981 was merely an instrument of the divine plan guided by providence and could not therefore have acted freely or other similar ideas in circulation. Rather, the vision speaks of dangers and how we might be saved from them. He went on to write that here a mother's hand had deflected the fateful bullet only shows once more that there is no immutable destiny, that faith and prayer are forces which can influence history, and that in the end, prayer is more powerful than bullets and faith more powerful than armies. Thus, John Paul II himself regarded Mary as having intervened to keep him from dying. That's why we have the famous quote from him that it was a mother's hand that guided the bullet path, and in his throes, the Pope halted at the threshold of death. This interpretation was endorsed by Sister Lucia. In the message of Fatima, it records that in her 2000 conversation with Archbishop Bertone, quote, Sister Lucia was in full agreement with the Pope's claim that it was a mother's hand that guided the bullet's path, and in his throes, the Pope halted at the threshold of death, close quote. So she agreed that the death that she saw in her vision of the third secret was averted by Mary's action in 1981. So, and Cardinal Ratzinger is basically saying that there are no fixed points in time. <laughs> at least not not these. I don't know that he says no, but none at all, but not the, in this case. Yes, Doctor Who fans will understand. So yeah. <laughs> what about the idea that the vision can't have... So time, time can be rewritten. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what about this idea that the vision can't have been fulfilled because Russia hasn't been properly consecrated by the Pope and the bishops? One claim used to argue for this objection is that John Paul II didn't explicitly mention Russia in the 1984 consecration. Instead, he referred to the peoples whose consecration and entrustment by us you are awaiting. So that clearly implies Russia. Also, in 1992 and 1993, Sister Lucia gave a pair of interviews in which she stated, The Virgin never said that the Holy Father had to say the word Russia. She said, quote, He will consecrate Russia to me, which will convert, and there will be peace, end quote. But that promised peace refers to the wars and persecutions that the eras of atheistic communism were causing in all the world. She also said, The fact that Russia was not referred to by name did not invalidate the consecration. Okay, so according to the seer herself, you don't have to specifically mention Russia. It's He made his intent clear. Everybody knew what he was saying. Another claim made to argue that the consecration hasn't been done is that not enough of the bishops of the world joined John Paul II in making the consecration. Uh, however, in the same interviews, Sister Lucia said, The majority of the bishops participated, and the fact that all did not was irrelevant to the validity. The message of Fatima also records her statement that the 1984 consecration was sufficient, saying, Sister Lucia personally confirmed that this solemn and universal act of consecration corresponded to what Our Lady wished. Quote, yes, it has been done just as Our Lady asked on 25 March 1984, end quote. Hence, any further discussion or request is without basis. Yeah. And that quotation, by the way, was from a letter she wrote on November 8th, 1989. Yeah. So uh, 11 years before they made all this public. Now, this statement was not an isolated one on her part that the consecration had been done. She said the same thing on other occasions, such as in her 1992-93 interviews, where she said, The consecration of Russia was accomplished by John Paul II on March 24th, 19, sorry, March 25th, 1984. There is no need for any more consecrations of Russia to fulfill the requests of Our Lady of Fatima. And if the seer herself was satisfied that this is the case, I don't see a solid basis for challenging it. Well, what about the objection that the vision hasn't been fulfilled since Russia hasn't been converted to the Catholic faith? Well, the word convert does not require the meaning convert to the Catholic faith. You have to look at the context to determine what kind of conversion is in view. And where that occurs in the second part of the secret, we read, 
If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be martyred, the Holy Father will have much to suffer, various nations will be annihilated. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me, and she shall be converted, and a period of peace will be granted to the world. Notice what's said. Russia will be converted, and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors, causing wars, various nations will be annihilated. But, in the end, she'll be converted, and a period of peace will be granted to the world. The context suggests that the conversion in question is from causing wars, like all of the proxy wars that occurred during the Cold War, so that the world will have peace. And that's not just my reading of the text, it's Sister Lucia's own interpretation. In her 1992-1993 interviews, she said, One must understand, we must not be mistaken with the word conversion. The word conversion, to convert, a conversion indicates a change. A conversion is a change from bad to good, but it does not mean that all the evil will disappear. She also said, Our Lady never said the conversion of Russia would be to Catholicism. Yeah. So just think about that for a moment. The seer herself is saying Our Lady never said the conversion of Russia would be to Catholicism. And she was clear that the conversion of Russia had taken place already in 1992 to 93, because in the interview she gave in those years, she said the conversion of Russia has taken place. So the conversion of Russia from its previous pattern of fomenting wars around the globe has happened. Uh, because in 1991, the Soviet Great. Union ceased to exist. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Are other interpretations of the third secret possible? Yeah, but private revelation is given to particular individuals who it principally concerns. In this case, the people who it particularly concerns were Sister Lucia and the other children who received the revelation, and then the popes of the 20th century who were asked to do the consecration, and particularly St. John Paul II, who was the victim of the assassination attempt on the anniversary of Our Lady's appearance. These people, of all people, would be the ones to receive divine guidance in understanding the message. So their interpretation is the one to be preferred. Is there anything else to say about this before we close? Yeah, I want to touch on one other thing. The possibility of nuclear war. This was the big thing that we were all afraid of during the Cold War. I remember growing up being intensely afraid of a nuclear war happening. And I think nuclear war is related to the message of Fatima. Remember, when Sister Lucia wrote down the third part of the secret in 1943, she said not to open it until 1960 because she had this intuition it would be better understood then. Well, in 1943, the first nuclear bomb had not been made. Uh, the first bomb wasn't finished until 1945, and they used it almost immediately. And almost nobody in 1943 even knew it was possible to make a nuclear bomb. A few physicists and politicians knew, but the public did not. Neither had the Cold War with Russia started. But in 1960, the world was in the grips of the Cold War, and it was all too well aware of the possibility of a nuclear war involving Russia. I think that's the reason Sister Lucia had the intuition that the secret would be better understood in 1960 than in 1943. Also, note what the second part of the secret warns about. If the consecration isn't done early, Russia will start wars, which may even annihilate nations. That would have happened in the greatest kind of war Russia could have started, a nuclear one. Then we look at the third part of the secret, and we find it saying, We saw an angel with a flaming sword in his left hand. Flashing, it gave out flames that looked as though they would set the world on fire. But they died out in contact with the splendor that Our Lady radiated towards him from her right hand. In light of what was known by 1960, it's hard not to understand the flames of the angel's sword looking as though they would set the world on fire as involving nuclear war. 
and the stopping of this conflagration by Mary's intervention in the vision looks like Mary stopping a nuclear war that would otherwise occur. This interpretation is even offered by Cardinal Ratzinger in his theological commentary in The Message of Fatima, where he wrote, The angel with the flaming sword on the left of the Mother of God recalls similar images in the book of Revelation. This represents the threat of judgment which looms over the world. Today, the prospect that the world might be reduced to ashes by a sea of fire no longer seems pure fantasy. Man himself with his inventions has forged the flaming sword. The vision then shows the power which stands opposed to the force of destruction, the splendor of the Mother of God, and stemming from this in a certain way, the summons to penance. In this way, the importance of human freedom is underlined. The future is not, in fact, unchangeably set. So it looks to me like Cardinal Ratzinger interpreted the sword, at least potentially, as involving nuclear war. But penance and Marian intervention can avoid that. And guess what? This is also part of the message of Akita. On October 13th, <laughs> there's that date, <laughs> on October 13th, 1973, the 56th anniversary of the last appearance of Our Lady of Fatima to the children, Sister Agnes Sasagawa of Akita was told by the Virgin Mary, If men do not repent and better themselves, the Father will inflict a terrible punishment on all humanity. It will be a punishment greater than the deluge, such as one never seen before. Fire will fall from the sky and will wipe out a great part of humanity, the good as well as the bad, sparing neither priests nor faithful. The survivors will find themselves so desolate that they will envy the dead. The only arms which will remain for you will be the rosary and the sign left by my son. Each day recite the prayers of the rosary. With the rosary, pray for the Pope, the bishops, and priests. So, got that? If men do not repent, there will be a deluge of fire that falls from the sky and wipes out a large part of mankind, both the good and the bad. But saying the rosary is one of the arms you will have. And bear in mind that Sister Sasagawa is in Akita on the main Japanese island of Honshu, where the city of Hiroshima is, the first city to receive an atomic blast. So with all that background, it's hard not to see the deluge of fire as a nuclear war and the use of the rosary as Marian intervention preventing it. Now, let me give you a little bit of Cold War history that most people don't know about. In May of 1981, the same month as the assassination attempt on John Paul II, longtime Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev and the head of the KGB, the Russian equivalent of the CIA, Yuri Andropov, held a secret meeting with officials in which they announced that America was preparing a secret nuclear attack on Russia. So they came to these leaders and said, we have learned America is about to attack us secretly. In response, they announced Operation Ryan. Ryan is a Russian acronym for nuclear missile attack. So this is Operation Nuclear Missile Attack. And what it was was a massive military in intelligence effort to look for signs that the West was about to launch a surprise attack. They had their agents in different Western countries looking at things like how much blood is stockpiled in the blood banks. And if they see like a spike in the amount of blood the West is stockpiling, that's a sign that we're about to be attacked. And Operation Ryan was continued until 1989, so all the way through the 80s. But in 1982, Leonid Brezhnev died and the KGB head Yuri Andropov became his successor. And Andropov was no slouch. He had previously been, I mean, he's head of the KGB. But also, right. he had been involved in putting down the 1956 Hungarian uprising against the Soviets. And the next year, in late September of 83, shortly after the downing of the Korean Airlines Flight 007, the Soviet satellite early warning system near Moscow malfunctioned twice and reported the launch of multiple American Minutemen nuclear missiles. At the time, Soviet policy called for them to immediately launch a retaliatory strike. But a single man, a Lieutenant Colonel Stanislaw Petrov, chose to ignore the alerts regarding them as errors. 
And that's how we narrowly missed a nuclear war in September of 1983. Just over a month later, in early November, NATO forces conducted a military exercise known as Able Archer 83, which involved a simulated move to DEFCON 1. Defense Condition 1 means, you know, this is it. We're going to a nuclear war, which is also thought to have had the potential to accidentally trigger a nuclear war. Three months after that, in February of 1984, Yuri Andropov died of kidney failure. On his deathbed, perhaps as a result of such close calls with nuclear war, he indicated that he wanted the reform-minded Mikhail Gorbachev to be his successor. But that didn't happen. Instead, Konstantin Chernyenko made a power play and became the new Soviet leader instead of Gorbachev. Chernyenko was already desperately ill, but he hung on to power. And in March of 1984, a month and a half after Chernyenko took power, St. John Paul II performed the full consecration that Sister Lucia indicated finally worked. Chernyenko died a year later on March 10th, 1985, and Mikhail Gorbachev finally became the new Soviet leader. He then introduced the perestroika reforms. He allowed the Soviet states in Eastern Europe to leave the Warsaw Pact and adopt democratic governments, and he oversaw the beginning of the end of the Cold War. Given all the contingencies in this series of dramatic events, though, it's very easy to see how things could have gone differently. Chernyenko could have lived longer. Given his extremely frail health, he could have been manipulated. A nuclear war might have started. Gorbachev might never have become leader and allowed the Cold War to wind down. So we're in this really crucial time frame of 1984 to 1985. And here's the twist. Sister Lucia is on record as saying that if it hadn't been for John Paul II's successful consecration in 1984, a nuclear war would have started in 1985. In her 1992-1993 interviews, she said, The consecration of March 25, 1984, prevented an atomic war that was to have occurred in 1985. She also said, Gorbachev was an instrument of God in the process of the conversion of Russia. So, for my purposes, that's it. I can't prove it, but I take very seriously the idea that we dodged a nuclear war because of the consecration John Paul II performed in 1984 as a result of the apparitions of Fatima. Wow. Okay, so, Jimmy, after these two episodes, we've, we put them together. What's your bottom line on the third secret of Fatima? I think the apparitions of Fatima in 1917 were genuine. I think that the attempted assassination of John Paul II on May 13th, 1981, the anniversary of Our Lady's first appearance, is a powerful confirmation of the fact that they're genuine. I think that the whole of the third secret has been revealed and that the substance of the Vatican and Sister Lucia's interpretation is correct. And I think it likely that we avoided a nuclear war in 1985 because John Paul II consecrated the world, including Russia, in 1984, per Our Lady's request. And thank God we avoided that war. Yes. Wow. <laughs> There's so many thoughts uh, going through my head about that, including uh, what role maybe Chernobyl may have played in some of this. Could Chernobyl have been worse than it was had it not been for the consecration of Russia and some other elements like that? Uh, did Did we mention the uh, Colonel... Um, uh, I forget his name. The one Pet- who Lieutenant Colonel Petrov. Yes, we mentioned him in our uh, episode a long time ago on the Soviet Doomsday System. I believe we did, and we'll certainly also be talking more in the future about near misses with nuclear war. Yes, uh, and and go back and listen to that if you haven't. That's a, a while ago, so if you've only subscribed recently, uh, that was a really good one. All right, so Jimmy, uh, again, uh, what further resources do we have? Uh, some of them are ones we mentioned last week, including Tarsicio Bertone and Benedict XVI's book, The Last Secret of Fatima. Also, uh, Martin and Fox's book, Documents on Fatima. Sister Lucia's Fatima in Her Own Words, Part 1 and 2, and her other book, Calls from the Message of Fatima. Then Sandra Zimdar Schwartz's book, Encountering Mary, 
We'll have a link to the Vatican document, The Message of Fatima, that we've been quoting from. Also, the 1978 document on discerning private revelations. Then we'll have several articles that I wrote on different aspects of Fatima and the Third Secret. We'll have Wikipedia's article on Fatima. And then we'll have something that I only introduced in this uh, episode. I mentioned these 1992-93 interviews that Sister Lucia did. They're discussed in a documentary by Carlos Evaristo, and we'll have a link to that on YouTube. So you can watch. In some cases, you have Sister Lucia herself speaking on screen in Portuguese with translation. So you can watch that. We'll also have an article arguing that World War II actually began in 1936. We'll have a, and thus clearly in the reign of Pius XI, we'll have an article on the Aer Lingus hijacking of 1981, information on the Akita Japan apparition, uh, information on Mem- Mehmet Ali Aja, and on the assassination attempt on John Paul II. And finally, we'll have information on Operation Ryan and the 1983 nuclear war false alarm that Russia had. All right. And in feedback this this week, we have feedback on our Mad Gasser episode. And we have an email from Thomas who says, I'm very excited for your upcoming show on the Mad Gasser. As a note for your broadcast, Mattoon is locally, locally pronounced Mattoon, sounding closer to the boy's name instead of sounding like a spittoon. Uh, many Central Illinoisians, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, will appreciate this attention to detail. Uh, as a side, Mattoon is also home of Burger King, though not the one you're thinking of. This local burger joint won a case involving the chain, meaning the Whopper will never be sold there. Yeah, so uh, Thomas sent his email before the show dropped, but after we recorded it. We record these well in advance, and so uh, that way we can have a buffer so that we never get delayed and the listener doesn't have to wait for an episode. So we record significantly in advance, and we had already recorded the episode on the Mad Gasser, so we couldn't incorporate the Mattoon pronunciation. But we did mention the Burger King that's not affiliated with the National Burger King and uh, celebrated it as a triumph for the little guy. So we did get that in. Yes. Uh, excellent. And then uh, we have a couple comments from YouTube. Mark Ellis writes, uh, lived in central Illinois for 20 years and don't remember hearing about this. Thanks for the information. And then Josh Hunk writes, I worked as a paramedic in Mattoon for five years and never heard this story. Yeah. So it's interesting what people do or don't know about uh, where they live. There's a lot of mysteries all around us. And I know that's certainly true for me. I'm always discovering new things about the place and places I've lived. Yeah. And I recently discovered that I live on the edge of the Bermuda Triangle of southeastern Massachusetts, which will be a future show, I hope. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's amazing to to learn these things. And that's one of the things I love about our show is that uh, it's things you've heard of and things you haven't heard of. Uh, and uh, that's that's always fun. So Jake writes on Facebook, I listen to these while I'm in between venues on tour playing guitar. This weekend, we went from Nashville to Wisconsin and passed by the sign for a mat- mattoon. I'm going to say that wrong every time as I was listening to the podcast. That was wild. Thanks for producing great content. I've listened to them all and haven't found a bad show yet. Thanks, Jake. And it is indeed uh, synchronicitous that you were listening to the podcast about Mattoon just as you passed the sign for it. Uh, we should have some Twilight Zone music to play there or something. <laughs> Maybe I'll edit that in. James writes on Patreon, you could not have produced a more fitting episode for a chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear defense officer. Uh, Thanks, James. And also thank you for your patronage. And you must have a unique perspective on this as it involved a gas attack or series of gas attacks. Yes, I can imagine that would be he would have some interesting uh, perspective on that. And then Adam Hovey writes on YouTube. My honest belief is that it's a mix of both mass hysteria and a real person. I think that there was really someone doing something, but then it got out of hand because everyone thought it was happening to them, too. I could be wrong, but I feel like a lot of things don't add up by just saying it was simply mass hysteria. And thank you, Dom, for saying my last name right. That is so uncommon. And thank you, Adam. I I agree. Uh, I think it was both mass hysteria and a real person in all likelihood. And I also appreciate it when people get my last name right. You wouldn't believe what I hear (laughs) when people try to pronounce Aiken or try to spell it based on hearing it. It's only four letters. Of course, as someone named Domenico Bettinelli, I'm... 
find that whole process to be very important as well. So um, I'm glad I got it right, Adam. Yeah. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines? The first one, since we're talking about uh, people's ability to do good here and, and change the future for the better, I thought it would be nice to have a link to a study that's been done debunking the Kitty Genovese effect. Back in uh, some decades ago, there was a woman named Kitty Genovese who was publicly killed, and it was argued that all kinds of people heard and none of them helped. And since that time, this has become a myth. It actually was not true, mm-hmm. uh, what was said, but the uh, it's become a myth and and it's this commentary on the sad state of humanity and modern life and things like that. Well, guess what? Video studies of actual dangerous incidents where someone is attacked without provocation show that more than 90 percent of the time bystanders will try to help. Mm. So that's really heartening. Also, since uh, Sister Lucia mentioned the unusual display of lights in the night sky that presaged World War II, I have a link to a new study that's been done. We've actually mentioned this phenomenon before. It's called Steve. It's kind of like the Aurora Borealis, but not really. And there's been a question of what Steve actually is. It looks different. It's like purple and green and stuff, and it it behaves differently. Well, a new study suggests that aurora-like phenomena Steve is actually a unique phenomenon that is not a typical aurora. Interesting. Steve's an acronym, right? I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. (laughs) Otherwise, it'd be a really weird random name. So, uh, so Jimmy, in a second, I'm going to ask you what our next episode is going to be about. And it's a good one, folks. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Ron T, Darren H, Joseph P, George G, and Caleb B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be talking about the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. Excellent. And so that's it from us. So what do you think about all of this surrounding the third secret of Fatima, the interpretation, the theories, the the Fatima itself? Uh, Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Uh, You can also send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Be sure to share, and I say this especially with these these last two episodes, share the podcast with your friends. We we saw with our first episode on Fatima how it, it actually, with a lot of people, we got a lot of new listeners who were interested in Fatima and then discovered the podcast and so please share this this with your friends uh, and also if you can write a review in apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast that, that helps us grow our audience and more listeners is better for all of us uh it makes the show better uh you can find more li- listeners more listeners means more patrons which means we get to make more shows <laughs> right <laughs> yeah right to put it very very uh straightforward like that so uh you can find links to all the resources jimmy mentioned as well as links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>